Are you an enthusiastic wine drinker but sweat uncontrollably over a restaurant list from Albarino to Zweigelt? Set aside your fears, relax, and start enjoying wine without worry. Here's your host, Jameson Fink. Hey, I am at the Four Seasons in Dallas, Texas. Actually, uh, Irving, Texas, I think is the correct spot. Uh, You might think I'm here to attend a Dallas Cowboys football game, and uh, you would be wrong. I'm actually here for uh, Texom. That's T-E-X, as in Texas, S-O-M, as in Sommelier. I'm actually here. It's a really cool uh, beverage conference, and I'm here seeing some friends and me- making new friends and hanging out and tasting a bunch of uh, incredible wine. I also came all the way to Dallas just to uh, have a chat with my friend Eric McLaughlin, who happens to be the vice president of Seven Hills Winery in Walla Walla, Washington. And we're uh, escaping the heat, uh, listening to some nice uh, soft rock with some comfy chairs and some nice carpeting and um eric thanks for being on the show my first question for you is i'm i'm curious because i know you travel a lot for the winery and uh living in uh seattle obviously my view of uh, washington wine is kind of skewed but what's what do people think when you travel uh about washington wine like consumers what questions do they have for you or what kind of stereotypes do they have that's a great question jameson and that's really changed a lot over the last 10 uh 20 years i think I mean, the old joke was that when people found out that you were from Washington, they asked what side of the Potomac your, vi- your vineyards were on. Um, but now there's, there's certainly a level of awareness uh, about Washington wines and, uh, that has evolved over that period of time. I'd say even as recently as 10 years ago, you tell people you were from you know, Washington State, and they're like, oh, I love Pinot Noir. <laughs> and uh, because you know, they, they were associating the Northwest, Oregon, and Washington as being you know, one thing, the same way that people conflate Portland and Seattle as cities sometimes. But, um, but I don't think that's the case anymore. People are really, um, certainly in the trade, much more engaged with knowing what varietals we do and we do well in Eastern Washington and the differences between uh, growing grapes in Eastern Washington and making wine on the west side of Oregon. Um, so people really, uh, really get it now. So the first thing that usually comes out of their mouth is, is Merlot. Um, they, I think there is a growing consensus or awareness um, on the national market that Washington makes some of the best Merlots in the world, maybe even the best place for Merlot in the new world. And uh, and I think that's that's the first grape varietal that's kind of off people's lips. I'm surprised because uh, I you know I, all I, all we read are kind of negative things about Merlot that it's fallen out of fashion. That I mean, actually, um, right before we started recording, we were talking about kind of our salad days of wine drinking and. Uh, one of the wines I mentioned was a uh, Meridian Chardonnay. I think another one would be Ravenswood Zinfandel. But I, I used to drink oceans of uh, California Merlot, just oceans of it. But so you're saying that people um, not they have a they're like hey, Merlot is cool, Washington Merlot is cool, or it's something that's on their mind. Absolutely, Merlot's back. I mean, at Seven Hills, we've we've seen all the trends. I mean, Seven Hills planted Merlot. Um, at the original Old Blocks at Seven Hills Vineyard in 1982 and made our first single varietal, single vineyard Merlot in 1988. So uh, we, we were on the early uh, side of the upswing of Merlot's popularity. Certainly we're able to ride that upswing and, and, and got caught up in, in the upswing of Merlot's popularity. We saw the decline in Merlot popularity and now we're seeing a very strong and very sudden upswing again that really, really started about three years ago. 
you know, the interesting th thing for us is being a relatively mature winery, we make a relatively static amount of Merlot each year. So for us, it hasn't been a boom or bust. The difference has been, um, you know, in the lean years, it might take you 12 months to sell your whole vintage of Merlot. And now, you know, it might take five months to sell, um, to sell the same amount of wine. So for us, we, we haven't really significantly adjusted our production to follow those trends. We make pretty much the same amount of Merlot each year. Um, but we're seeing that it, it sells itself now. People are already positively inclined uh, when they see that it's Merlot from Washington State. And I think being at Texom is a really interesting place to talk about Merlot because I think uh, the sommelier culture was largely part of what per kind of put Merlot on the ground, you know. What, what Obviously, people want to point to the Sideways movie and the famous line in the Sideways movie about Merlot. That didn't help. Um, and there was so much bad Merlot or mediocre Merlot that was made that... Yep, that's what I was drinking in the 90s. Yeah. But I was lapping up with, with abandon, with no abandon. Well, there was, um, there was so much mediocre Merlot um, produced during that period that Merlot rightfully got a, uh, a poor reputation. So it was, it was ready for the backlash. And it really wasn't Merlot's fault there's nothing inherent about Merlot that makes it an inferior grape. The problem was is that people planted Merlot in too many of the wrong places and were making it without great respect or, or, or aspiration for, for the grape. And so there, there was a sea of mediocre Merlot, and the backlash was real and justified. Um, but the way trends go, uh, it seems like everything, once it becomes really uncool, it's the perfect time for it to become cool again. Right. And, and we certainly see that with the sommelier world, is that um, sommeliers are really great about championing underdogs. And, uh, and that was a large part of the surge of Pinot Noir, is Pinot Noir was the underdog, Merlot was what was dominant, and now it's completely flipped. Now Pinot Noir right. is, uh, is overpopular. And Merlot's the underdog again, and we see so many people championing it, really specific to Washington State. I can't, I can't say if California Merlot is seeing the same resurgence, but I can say that we as a winery are seeing that resurgence, and, and we perceive it as being, um, being not just something specific to us, but, but really specific to Washington in general. And one kind of uh, development that, I mean, for a, a historic Washington winery like Seven Hills, which started when? Uh, well, we originally started as a vineyard. You know, the, the founders of Seven Hills Winery were also the founders of Seven Hills Vineyard. So the vineyard, uh, the first vineyard blocks were planted in 1980 and then expanded in 1982. And then we started as a winery in 1988. Okay. So you've been around for a while, but a recent development that I think we've talked about before, that's kind of a, I don't know if it's caught you by surprise, but um, the appetite for um, the rosé that you make, a Cabernet Franc rosé, and um, I just think it's a really interesting story. Can you talk about the decision to make a rosé and then the reaction you've gotten over the past couple vintages? Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, we, um, rosé is a relatively new thing for us. Being, you know, being such a, a long-established winery, introducing something new is not something we do as often right. as some other wineries do. We've kind of settled into really what our long-term focus has always been, which is, you know, Cabernet, Merlot, Bordeaux varietal blends. Um, we decided a few years ago that uh, we wanted to make rosé um, 
for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, primarily, we really liked drinking it. Um, we really loved rosé, and we found that we were drinking mostly imported rosés, and there were a few Northwest-produced rosés that we liked, but we didn't feel that there was really somebody making the style of rosé that we thought we could make and that we wanted to make. We thought that we had a unique contribution to give to rosé rather than just making another pink wine. We we had a, a style vision and a varietal vision that um, that we didn't see being happening. Um, so we thought there was a real reason to do it. Um, and and personally, it was it was a bit of a personal indulgence. We we were curious. We wanted to try. So we experimented for a couple of years, doing experimental blocks till we really kind of figured out what we wanted to do. And then in 2013 vintage, uh, so it would have been released in the spring of 2014, we released our first commercial rosé, and um, and it's a rosé of Cabernet Franc, and it was. Uh, uh, it, it, its success significantly surprised us. Um, my my belief with rosé is that you should make less than what you can sell. Um, I, I love to drink rosé year-round, but I don't want to sell rosé year-round. So we projected that we could probably sell 500 cases, so we decided the right thing to do was to make 400 cases. And my goal was to sell that out by the end of July, and it was sold out in 10 days. So we clearly knew very little about the market for rosé um, and really underestimated that. Uh, and then how much did you make uh, this year? Uh, so we increased production um, a little over 300% to, uh, to just short of 1,300 cases in 2014. And, and how long did those cases last? Uh, we were sold out in about a month. Wow. So, um, and my goal again was to sell out by the end of July. So, so we're very, very pleased with uh, the market's reception for rosé, um, and it's a phenomenon that we haven't we haven't seen anything like that before. Having that sort of uh, not only just immediate scale, but also how quickly it sells, um, and I think it just has to do with when people drink rosé, they drink a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> so, you know, when they buy a bottle of Cabernet, you know, it's like they're good. Like, you know, I'll have a bottle of Cabernet next week and, you know, and then I'll have somebody else's. When they drink rosé, they're drinking, you know, four, six bottles, you know, at a dinner party. And it just, um, so the, the scale of it is really just different than what we've experienced with any other wine we've ever made. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, I mean, I don't know, I'm just reading all this stuff, like, rosé, it's big now, and all this stuff, and it's just, it's one of those things where, you know, kind of roll your eyes, and you're like, well, I've been drinking that for 20 years. Uh, after I gave up Meridian Chardonnay, I moved uh, immediately to a dry Provencal-style rosé. It's in the Loire Valley-style rosé. Well, it took me maybe a couple of uh, intervening years, but... Um, um, and also, if you're a rosé fan, and uh, your Instagram, Yesway Rosé, is a really fun um, Instagram account to follow. Um, and uh, speaking of my sort of uh, nascent years in, in wine business, um, I actually don't know how you first got involved in the wine business. So could you tell me that, Eric? Oh, how me personally? Yeah, I do, yeah. Oh, okay. I, I don't even know that story. Well, uh, is it is it sorted? Uh, no, no, it's it's a simple story, you know. There, and it's similar to so many other people's stories in the wine business. Is, you know, I did my undergraduate work at Linfield, which is in the middle of the Oregon wine oh, country. Right. I just went there for uh, IP, the International Pinot Noir Conference. It's an amazing event. That's one of my favorite events. I was actually the head som for that in 1997. That's how old I am getting <laughs> now. But um, that's one of my favorite events in the wine industry. Um, so I, I, I did. Uh, I went to school there, and um, I was fortunate to be able to go to Linfield through scholarships. And but I still needed to work to put myself through school. And I looked around McMinnville at the time, and this is the early '90s. Um, 
you know, and there were grass seed farms and hazelnut orchards and a steel mill and a Purina dog food factory and a mobile home plant. And there were wineries and, and it really isn't much more complicated than I liked, you know, I liked wine and girls that I know liked wine and I liked girls and, and it was it's like, just that simple. It's really that simple. It was like, wow, that looks a lot sexier than working at the steel mill. Mm-hmm. And so I was fortunate to, uh, to, to just fall into it and be in at the right place at the right time. And then when I graduated Linfield, I was going to take a year off uh, before going to grad school and, um, and just do the wine thing for a little bit longer till it wasn't fun anymore. Uh-huh. And, and so we're more than 20 years in and it's still fun. So that's fantastic. Um, and then another, I guess I kind of want to wrap up with uh, talking about um, sort of uh, where you see, you know, your winery in Washington wine going. Um, actually, the, the Wine Commission is here at Texom, and uh, they have a couple events here, and they're sponsors. So um, what is, where, where do you see the Washington wine industry going, if you looked in your, your crystal ball? Well, I, I see nothing but growth for the future of Washington wines um, in general, both in terms of number of wineries where, you know, we're approaching a thousand wineries in the state now. I think that counts. I think it broke 900. Um, it, it, it's really remarkable the, uh, the growth that the industry has seen. I mean, if we think about, you know, back at the beginning, you know, for Seven Hills, when when the founders of Seven Hills planted the, the first blocks at Seven Hills Vineyard, there was one winery in the Walla Walla Valley. Wow. Nine years later, when they started the winery, they were the fifth winery in the Walla Walla Valley. You know, now in Walla Walla alone, we have 170 wineries. So the growth has been astronomical, but we see nothing in the marketplace that, that, that tells us that there's a limiting factor, that there's a top side that, or a glass ceiling to it that we can't go beyond. You know, in Washington, we specialize in grape varietals that people like to drink. Um, we're, we're not constrained to certain grape varietals that, and whatever the market potential is for those grape varietals. I mean, our, our, our largest selling, our number one and two planted grape varietals in Washington state are Cabernet and Merlot. And, um, and the market for those continues to grow. And we're not limited as a region from, uh, in terms of land either. Um, we certainly are seeing more and more vineyards planted every year in Washington State. Um, and the plantable acreage um, uh, to expand is virtually unlimited. Really, the only limiting factor to, uh, from a viticulture perspective to the growth of Washington State is water. And, um, and so, obviously, that, that limits some things. You have to have land with water rights or, or have land with water rights that you're able to transfer to a, a piece of land that is um, vineyard appropriate. Um, but that's really the only thing we see limiting the future of Washington wines. Nothing in the marketplace and nothing viticulturally that should prevent Washington from continuing to grow. So you live in Walla Walla, so I'm wondering if you can eat, like, what are a couple of your favorite places to eat and drink in Walla Walla? Oh, that's a great question. Well, we're really, we're really blessed. Um, you know, my wife and I joke about it sometimes about how, you know, how many little towns of 30,000 people around the world do you have the number of world-class restaurants that we have? Um, I, I'd say the place that my wife and I just, for whatever reason, go to most often is Brasserie 4, which is, um, you know, Hannah, the owner-chef there, just, she pr- she does classic French bistro food. It's not haute cuisine. It's not, it's not her interpretation of French cuisine. It's just perfectly executed, consistently good, classic French dishes. Um, and, and it's casual. And they have a great wine program. I and mean, we're into pretty esoteric wines. We love to drink uh, Washington wines, but we also love to drink French wines. And, and they have 
by far the most stellar program wine program if you like to drink French wines <laughs> in, in Walla Walla. We also love saffron. Um, there's no question that Chris Ainsworth um, and Island Ainsworth are producing some of the most innovative and interesting and consistently flavor-intense food um, in the Northwest. Um, White House Crawford is our, is our special place that we go just for the, you know, the beautiful atmosphere, the beautiful service, immaculate service, um, and outstanding food that, that, that Jamie Guerin is, continues to put out after 15 years. You know, that was really the, the pioneer fine dining spot in Walla Walla, and they're, they're, I think they're at their top of the game. They're, they're better than they've ever been. And for a little, you know, tea macarons is also delicious. Tom Macaron does a great job. And, um, you know, for a little getaway, we love going out to Jim German Bar out in Waitsburg. I have shockingly never been there. I feel like there's, a, there's sort of a hole in my, my Walla Walla, Eastern Washington life. I know a few people I think would enjoy the place as much as you do, and most people love the place. Uh, yeah, yeah. I would love it. I also want to plug, um, I want to, uh, a shout out to a different type of cuisine, but I only went, I've only been there once, but I was just uh, captivated by, by the scene and the food and the setting, and it just seems so quintessential. Uh, not wild, wild, just like kind of like a really hidden gem was uh, uh, like getting tacos and burritos at the Worm Ranch. Oh, the Worm Ranch. Well, how many places can you get bait and tacos at the same time? It's incredible. The sign is a great uh, photo op. I mean, it's literally a bait shop. And they have, um, I mean, it's been like nationally recognized, I think, for like their veggie burrito or something like that, too. But um, it's a great spot to uh, to go to. Uh, so Worm Ranch. Yeah, we we love the Worm Ranch, and if and if you want if you want authentic Mexican in addition to the Worm Ranch, you know there's um, there's several taco trucks, and La Monaca is pretty much our favorite. And you know Walla Walla has its own style of street taco. Even did oh, you really? know? That? No, I did not know that. Uh, you can order. You, you can go to any of the taco joints, and you can order it Walla Walla style. So you get whatever you know carne asada or or um, or whatever type of meat you like on it, and then it has. Um, uh, caramelized Walla Walla sweet onions, fresh avocado, and a little bit of melted cheese. Oh, wow. That's a great insider tip. So uh, next time you're in Walla Walla, do visit Seven Hills Winery. The website is Seven Hills, seven as in uh, spell it out, uh, hills, plural, sevenhillswinery.com. Uh, now you know where to get tacos and possibly some rosé and definitely some um, Merlot and Cabernet. Uh, Eric, thanks for being on the show. And uh, everyone, uh, we're uh, touting Walla Walla from um, Dallas, Texas. Thank you, Jameson. You're listening to Wine Without Worry with Jameson Fink. 